As you watch the screen, your heart begins to beat faster. There's a fluttering in the pit of your stomach. Your throat is dry. Your palms damp. Suddenly a chill runs down your spine. You clutch the person next to you. You tell yourself, it's only a movie. It's only a movie. But sooner or later, it's time to go home. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I'm Ron. And this is our review of Friday the 13th, The Final Chapter. Yeah, right. Starring Kimberly Beck, Peter Barton, Corey Feldman, Alan Hayes, Joan Freeman, Crispin Glover, Barbara Howard, Judy Aronson, and Ted White, who hated the director so much apparently he has to have his name taken off the film. You left me that note. So, <laughs> directed by Joseph Zito, who did Invasion USA that we reviewed and Mission in Action. Released in 1984 on a budget of $2.6 million, grossed $32.9 million at the box office. The computer don't lie, Ron, and neither do the box office returns. 32-9. Yes. <laughs> That's exactly why the final chapter was anything but the final chapter. Yeah, like, this was the final chapter for the independent company that, like, Frank Mancuso, like, that group had been that had been putting these movies together, like, all the, like, underling people. This was not the final chapter for Paramount. They're like, y'all can do whatever you want. We'll just go on without you. All the other people, like, the first Friday the 14th movies, all the first four of them, were independently made, and then Paramount bought distribution rights. After this, Paramount starts making them in, in earnest by themselves, but they, up until this point, really had not, you know, controlled it. It was this, you know, small little group out of Jersey doing these things, and now, the, you know, they're like, we're done. <laughs> like, we, we were done last time, now we're really done, and... If you're to believe what the writers say is that they were going to, like, so kill Jason in this one that there was no way. Like, he's supposed to have his head split completely in two at the end of it. It's, you know, all that stuff going on. And they bring Tom Savini back uh, for this one. Who I, You know, I talked about last time he was available for part three, but they just didn't call him. And then they called him for this, and he was like, well, yeah, sure, I'd love to come kill what I created. And, uh... <laughs> I will say, boy, you can tell, too, that, you know, they didn't spend a lot of money on this movie, but, man, the quality of this one is light years ahead of where they were in the last one. Like, not even close. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, and it's weird that it took Paramount so long to take it over, uh, but I guess that's because uh, Frank Mancuso, his father was the president of Paramount. Right. <laughs> so he was ready to move on, but other people at Paramount are like, yeah, that's okay. You can move on, but uh, we make money with this. Like, I would love to see a list of all the things that Friday the 13th Revenue produced, you know? Because, <laughs> like, New Line Cinema is great, you know, was known as the house that Freddy built. <laughs> if there had not been Freddy, there wouldn't have been any of that other stuff that they ever did. So 
I'd, I'd be curious to know what all got produced off of Friday the 13th Returns, particularly the first four movies, because they, they were raking the dough in. Because, again, you've got actors here that are known because they went on to do other things in their career, you know? They're, they weren't known at this point. They were all just another set of good-looking people to kill. Yeah, what, uh, what year did this one come out? This was 1984, uh, so some of them were on the brink of doing things. Yeah, Crispin Glover was on the brink of uh, Back to the Future. Yep, he was, and uh, you know Peter Barton, I think, had been in soap operas and was going to be in other soap operas, and uh, Judy Aronson has been in a lot of stuff, but I'll tell you what I remembered her from when I read her IMDb page. She was the girl in Nelson's I Can't Live Without Your Love and Affection video. I knew I knew oh, that wow. face. She's also like in a lot of other 80s movies, but I knew I knew that face from something. And then I, uh, yes, I've watched that video a few times on YouTube since watching this this week. <laughs> uh, for this. And that song, by the way, still works. Uh, you say what you want about how girly they look. Those kids could sing. So Rick Nelson's boys weren't playing. So, oh, definitely. <laughs> yeah. So, but uh, no, you know, like I, I'll say this too, though. Instead of just getting pretty people to do things, Everybody here is actually giving a performance. Like, I I will credit this Friday the 13th movie for the first one out of any of them, I think, that actually had a story that it was trying to tell. They wanted to tell the death of Jason Voorhees, and they framed it around all these other people that were going to be, that all of them get killed. Like, everybody in that cabin gets whacked. But they gave us actual characters, and it shows. I think the quality of this one is, is way up. Would you say that the most famous actor in this cast at the time was uh, Corey Feldman? I think so. At this point, probably so. I mean, I yeah. Think it, I mean, this is know, this is pre um, pre Goonies, pre Goonies, but he was still, you know, he's uh, on TV and yeah, he, uh, he was the in the Fox and the Hound. He was the voice in Fox and the Hound. Yeah. Uh, he, he was. was he was coming on. I mean, people knew him. If you hear Ted White, the guy that played Jason in this or whatever, he pretty much hated Corey Feldman on the set. Said he was a brat, <laughs> couldn't stand him. He thought he was really good for that role because that role was supposed to be a bratty kid, and he sure enough was that. You know? yeah. So, but the director says, you know, people like to complain about Corey, but he never complained. He did his takes. He did them multiple times. He was always on time. So clearly, he hadn't developed any of his substance problems to that point. So, uh, but you know, <laughs> glad, glad it looks like. The failed man has mostly kicked that now in his life. Good for him. But, uh, yeah, this is before he really took off. But, you know, but you've got Crispin Glover here who gives a performance. And is a and he's a quirky dude anyway. But I think it's before anybody knew that. So, I yeah, I, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I liked it. I, I really thought the cast here was was well put together for basically just being, you know, led to the slaughter. Yeah, it seems like they decided to do the reverse of part three and cast people with some actual acting skills rather than just, you know, the attractive people who are willing to take their clothes off and or get covered in corn syrup. Boy, I'll tell you, the taking clothes off and corn syrup uh, uh, stipulation in the contract clearly was in play here, though, because I think everybody gets naked except Crispin Glover and Corey Feldman and, and his sister. But like I even at one point I thought even the mom maybe did. I mean, good grief! Everybody in this movie is getting naked. Crispin Glover took his shirt off, which was he, weird. Which was weird because you don't think. But you know, again, he's wearing long sleeves. So I don't know what time of year this is supposed to be. But so I think this is supposed to be the day after the last one. So this is Sunday the fifteenth. Now, am I right so, about that? 
I, I believe so. Yeah, I think that, I think you're right. So this is technically like 1980. Well, they they say still 1980, right? Well, no, no. They say that first movie took place in 1979. Okay, because they established that in this movie because we do get a a graveyard gravestone statue uh, shot of. Uh, Pamela Voorhees' headstone, buried on the side of the road, you know, for some reason. And and it's 1979, and then they say five years pass between those two. So this is supposed to be 1984. It's supposed to be the year that it comes out. So, okay. So all of these last three movies are supposed to have been 1984. So, um, which is, I could buy, for the most part. I, you know, we talked about 1980, the, the part two, that it didn't look right because MTV hadn't hit yet. MTV had hit at this point, and all these kids kind of looked like they still dressed. They they were dressing the right way this time. Yeah, that, that's definitely the case. Um, yeah, it's definitely this is definitely the um, decline of Western civilization to the Metal Years. Uh, <laughs> yes, all all we needed was somebody in a pool chugging some vodka, so, and and it, and a band called Odin. But before we get into that, why don't you tell us what happens in this alleged final chapter, Ron? Sure thing. Picking up where the last two films left off on the same bloody weekend, Jason's body is taken to the morgue, where he mysteriously revives, kills, and makes his way back to the Crystal Lake area. Meanwhile, Tommy, his sister Trish, and their mother bump into another group of young people retreating to the area for some sun and fun, although it rains every night, so I don't know how it's (laughs) actually going to be sunny. Once again, one by one, the bodies pile up until Rob, brother brother of a victim in part two, Shows up and warns Tommy about Jason, but he's still not able to avoid the killer himself. Eventually, Tommy distracts Jason while he's attacking Trish and turns the table on the killer, hacking him to bits and ending the nightmare once and for all. Dot dot dot. Or did it just begin? Ah, uh, yeah. Because even though they were at the end, and yes, this is the end. Somebody along the way told uh, Savini, "Hey, don't split it down the middle. Split the head down the side, because we might be coming back." And let's have Corey Feldman look weird into the camera because maybe we'll go there, but we'll get there. We'll get there. So, I, you know what? I, I actually, our, our friend Brian that is going to be joining me uh, coming up next week, starting the Nightmare on Elm Street series, and will culminate uh, in that Freddy versus Jason that we talked to before and did Last House on the Left with. Um, I told him, because he's never seen any of the Friday the 13th movies at all. I said, all you need to do is watch part four. Because it tells you everything you need from parts one, two, and three, and sets up like the greatest kill scenes of each or whatever, and then it gets you into a new movie. I I have told more than one person that too that doesn't know Friday the Thirteenth. I'm like, just watch part four. Really? So am I gonna? Miss, you're not really gonna miss anything. So just go watch part four. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Yeah, that's uh, that's definitely fair. Um, they've. It's weird because they really go out of their way to give us a greatest hits in the beginning, but clearly at this point, home home video was more of a was getting to be more common, wasn't it? Right. Yeah, it was starting like 1984 was the beginning of that market in year. So you would think people would have seen these. Plus, they they had been on cable at that point, so people would know them. Yeah, HBO was a thing. Um, True. I, you know, the other thing I think, though, is because they're advertising this as final chapter or whatever, they're gonna br- they're trying to bring in a wider audience, and they may be people who don't know them, and they just want to give everybody the quick run through. I mean, they spend almost no time in part one. It's all mostly part two and a little bit from part three last time, but it's mostly 
Jason killing people from part two that they, they hang on to here. Yeah. It, I think it's because they realized that the movie was about 85 minutes and they needed to, <laughs> to lengthen it just a little bit more to make it they, feel like a real movie. I wonder if you cut it out, like if you would even hit 80 minutes. <laughs> I really do think this one is fast. And that's not a complaint, by the way. It just may not make the required you know, running time that was necessary uh, when it's all said and done. But yeah, it, it, we do get a long kill scene, you know, splatter shots at the beginning. And then I asked you a question here that I was like, is Golden Globus now doing the titles? Because this feels like a Golden Globus explosion behind the mask and all that. I'm like, man, I've I've seen this before. In a, where's Chuck Norris? Yeah, that's you can definitely tell uh, Joseph Zito's got some Golden Globus in his background because that is very much a, you know, a Braddock missing in action three style um, credit explosion. Yeah, I mean it's it's American Ninja Three. I mean it's what it feels like. I mean it's kaboom, and then you know, but we don't get a cool song though. That's the thing. The music in this one, it's like they just took what was left over again and just slapped it in there. I that make that that disappointed me. I, I we got such a funky song last time. I kind of wanted something this time. Like, yeah, I was hoping for like a nice Van Halen riff, or or yeah. a little Cars. Maybe, yeah, 84. I mean, they have some, some Cars-type music later on. You know, they've got some other stuff. They've also got some, like, Lawrence Welk crap for some reason that people start playing. But, uh, yeah, I don't because know Because it was up. cheap. I guess so. But, I mean, we, we've got that. But, yeah, we don't, we don't get great uh, music. But I do like the way the titles sort of roll out and that we're getting all this stuff right. And we pick up, like, right at the end. And I think Zito's the one that has said, I wanted to pick up with Jason dead at the beginning of this movie and dead at the end. And so I was going to ask a question. Is Jason dead and this is the first, like, zombie Jason we get to see here? Well, from the way he was killed in 3, I mean, yeah, you didn't split his head open, but you definitely jammed a machete into his brain, and then he does that really slow slide down the machete. Well, that that uh, that's part that's part four you're talking about. I'm talking about at oh. the end of part three. Here is are we to presume at the beginning of this movie that he is dead, and that now we see Zombie Jason? I think after this, it's no question it's Zombie Jason. But I'm wondering is he still somehow alive from the events of part three, and then he's you know now he's for sure dead at the end of part four, or is is this zombie Jason coming out for the first time here in the morgue? I, I, to me, it feels like it's the beginning of uh, zombie Jason. Just because they, I mean, he ends up in the morgue. If you've got a pulse, you don't end up in the morgue. You don't yeah, but, end up in the, in the morgue until you're cold. But for some reason, they leave the mask on him again, which is a, a horror movie trope, I know. But they never take the mask off the dead body. Have you noticed that? They always leave it on these guys when they're when they're macking them up. Maybe they're worried about uh, preserving the chain of evidence. I think it's pretty clear one went down. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, there's, there's only one girl that's left alive, right? And she's out of her mind. So um, pretty much. So I, there is a great uh, bit of retconning on the internet that tells us that a dark-headed girl that you see crying in the corner of the hospital is supposed to be Chris from the end of the last movie that you're being comforted by parents or whatever there. And that, that, you know, 
that Jason is wheeled by her and that that's why he awakens. I, I think that's just mm-hmm. people trying to put something that's there. I don't think the filmmakers even thought about that again. Yeah, that's definitely no, nobody involved with this thought. No. Anything like that, but it's a fun theory. I mean, yeah, it is. I mean, if you want to have it, it's there. You could do it, but uh, we do get Jason on the ride of the morgue and the horniest coroner ever. Like, and the nurse goes for it. That's the thing. It's one thing to be a skis. It's another thing when the woman's like, sure, you know, and they just Halloween two style. They just go for it. Yeah, it's and it's some of the most awful foldy work I think I've ever heard. Uh, as they're making out, it's just oh. stomach churning. Yeah, I, I was watching oh. it on my laptop, and I had my my good headphones on, so I got like stereo mouth smacking. It was nasty. It is. It was like listening to a couple people chew through some beef jerky or something. It yeah, it's pretty bad. You're not wrong, but we get we get our first kills here with Jason, and we get the the corner gets his throat cut with a saw and his head twisted off. And the nurse gets cut open with a scalpel. Take that, Halloween, too. But both of these mark something that is evident in this film, that the MPAA was not going to be having any of this this time. All of these scenes are cut so abruptly that you barely get to linger on them. Yeah, that may be one of the reasons why they had to pad it out, because they ended up having to cut... I think it was like five minutes from the movie. Yeah, there, like, there's a lot. Yeah, there's a lot of like blood spray and a lot of uh, Tom Savini's masterwork that I think will never, we will never see. Oh, you can see it. It's on YouTube. The quality ain't great, but you can see the alternate takes and stuff. And it's just longer. Everything just lingers longer. The blood spurts more. It drips more. It gushes more. Like the nurse, like you pan down and you see her start bleeding on the floor. Basically, so it's, I mean, it's its grotesque, but it's what you expect and kind of want. It's the over-the-top part that makes this kind of movie fun to watch. Because the thing is, is and they did they did realize one thing from part three, we don't need to introduce these serious little character nodes about people. Like, because that just leaves everybody feeling icky and weird. Like, we just need to have people that are there to get killed, and we need to kill them in really, really awesome-looking ways. And I, they were right to think that. I think it... You know, a lot of people will ding this movie for the the overabundance of gore, but I actually think it it makes it work. Yeah, I think it's a lot. I think it makes it super entertaining. Uh, this is this is probably my favorite one of the bunch. Um, I mean, it, yeah, it's not hard to say that a lot of people love this one, and and I, you know, I'm going to hold off on rating it just yet, but I it does hold up pretty well, and a lot of it is the effects. Tom Savini's really at work here and doing good stuff. So, and it seems like. Uh, they they have more like cardboard characters for Jason to cut through, but it also seems like they're trying to make it make some of the scene some of the kills mean more. Uh, well, yeah, you, you're, you're supposed to get invested in these people. We talked about it last time that everybody was really pretty, and so they just had all these pretty people led to the slaughter. Well, they got pretty people this time, but they at least all have like a character. They they have a performance that they're trying to give. You know, you have the the two friends, Chris McGlover and his friend, that, that, you know, he's like trying to get relationship advice. And the guy's like, the computer don't lie, you know, and he's giving him all that crap. And it's this terrible advice, you know, but it's like that buddy you would 
you would hang around with and would annoy the stew out of you, but you still loved him, you know. And and you got the the two guys up front, the one cool looking dude, and the other party guy who's got a girlfriend, but is you know looking to hook up and cheat on her any chance he can. And you've got the two girls next door who just meet up with them, and the first thing they want to do is go skinny dipping. I mean, you know, nobody's got any real depth here. You're right, but they're all like you know giving a performance. They're doing something, and I think it makes them more than just lambs to the slaughter. I think the other thing, too, is you've got a family unit out here that is, like, fully functioning. Like, instead of being visitors to the area, these people just live out here. Tommy, Trish, and Mrs. Jarvis. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely uh, one of the things they decided to do was to make to make the care. Because, uh, honestly, in the, f- the first three, there are some people, like, I have to think about who they are because they're all kind of generic. You know, which dark-haired guys, this right. one again, you know. Right, right. Uh, that kind of thing. But this one, you've definitely got, you've got um, the the sleazy Teddy the computer. You've got Crispin Glover. <laughs> you've got the twins um, who, funnily enough, I don't know if you read this one or not, but one of the twins auditioned. And when they found out that, or one of the girls auditioned, and when they found out she had a twin, they said, oh, bring her along. We'll cast her too. So both twins got in the movie because... Uh, just pure luck. Well, I'm sure the the capitalization on the idea of we can kill two girls, awesome. It, I mean, because at the time, you know, it was hot those friggin' double mint commercials. And right? these two girls were in a double mint commercial. I thought they were. I was going to ask you that, and I'm sure somewhere or another they're like, we can kill the double mint twins. Why not? I mean, that's the exactly the kind of thing I would expect the producers of this film to go for, and uh, for- it's not the wrong instinct. Right, no, and for all I know, those were the two double mint twins who ride up in the commercial. They ride up on the bike and stop, and that's why they're riding bikes when you first see them in this movie. I I think you're exactly right. It's that's probably what people would know they're from, right? I mean, I I thought it was pretty good. I I enjoyed it. Uh, I, I enjoyed their performances, and not just because I'm you know, they're getting naked and they're a horn dog or whatever. But I thought they were funny. I mean, you've got one that's definitely more into the partying than the other one, and I do think that's kind of neat. That, they both get killed because one of them wants to stay and have a good time, you know? (laughs) Yeah. That's again, that, that just seems like because, uh, Frank Mancuso Jr. was done with it. I think he, he, he made them put more thought into it than perhaps they had been. Yeah. And I'm glad they did. Right. I mean, we, we get, you know, the Pamela Voorhees grave marker that we've already talked about. Right. And I'm like, who buried her out there and who paid for that headstone? Those things are not cheap. So I'm like, who, <laughs> no. who did? Yeah, who did that on the side of the road? And then what is with the mute hitchhiker? What did she just do to deserve to die with her banana in her hand? She uh, made the mortal mistake of being a fat person <laughs> and hitchhiking. I guess. I, I guess. <laughs> I mean, it's woo, it's bad. So I, I mean, I of all the kills in the film, I'm like. I, that one feels like the we've gone six minutes without blood. We should probably have some blood. And I do understand this person was like an extra, like a PA on the set. And they're like, hey, you want to die? And they're like, sure. So, and, and the only thing like Ted White told her was like, I'm going to grab you by the hair. It'll be okay. Don't fight me. Just just grip the banana and don't fight me. And so she's like, okay. And that they went with it. So uh, it's a pretty good looking kill, though. So uh, I I love how mom is reading the paper though, and it's like already in the paper that a mass murderer is there, and like she's not freaking out by this at all. 
<laughs> you know, and I go, I'm like, maybe it's just because I live in the 2010s where we freak out about everything, you know, real or, or otherwise in the news. And I just am not used to Reagan era moms that were just like, oh, there's a mass murder on the loose again. Oh, well, it's like that time that woman poisoned the you know, camp blood or whatever. I mean, it's, you think she would know about it and be like, oh, really? No, it doesn't seem even like amused by it. It's like, where's the funnies? It's, it, yeah, it's like it's not. It's like she's not aware that this happened like two campsites down from where they've got their palatial uh, lakeside estate. There are like four stories with artwork about this in the paper a day and a half after it happens. (laughs) I'm like, man, wow. People think news moves fast now. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's just another – that's just one of the weird things about the movie that – I mean, this was the 80s. There was a panic about everything. I mean, right. Like, the, why weren't the Satanists getting blamed for this? Is what I Yeah, didn't about. Jason play Dungeons and Dragons? Couldn't or we throw that in? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, molested by a satanic uh, daycare. Uh, or something. Yeah, there, there was that. Yeah, maybe it was just a year or two before all that panic really hit. Because if Geraldo had been a thing at this point, he would have been in Crystal Lake. Let's just, let's just call it. Okay, that that would have been like, you know, from the side of this, you know, quaint New Jersey campsite, 40 dead people. So, <laughs> it would have been like uh, the search for Al Capone's vault, but like the search for Mrs. Voorhees' shack. Yeah, exactly. Mrs. Voorhees' head. You know, I mean, like, really, they would have been connecting dots everywhere in the Internet age. This, There's no way that, like, hashtag camp blood, that would have been all over. But mom's not even freaked out by it, right? But she is, you know, she's not freaked out by the murder going on, but she is freaked out by the fact that her son is going through puberty right before our eyes watching naked people across the street. Yeah. American values. You know, all the blood and gore you want. No boobies. But to be fair, that's that's one of the more unsettling scenes in the movie. It is a little weird because I know they're not letting... Corey Feld, Corey Hain. Corey Feldman watched Judy Ronson take off her shirt. Um, that's what I mean, we're seeing. Hope not. <laughs> well, I would hope they didn't do that to the poor kid. But his reaction to it is so strange. It's like he's coked out or something. It's really weird. I'm projecting a little on a kid here, but I mean, look, I was eight once too. I didn't do that the first time I saw. The female form, you know. Yeah, I, and, and I don't, I don't know. Maybe he he was high. Maybe I mean, that's the, got something to do with it. Because I mean, it's, yeah, it's and Judy, it's not the first time it happens. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Judy Garland was on pills at that age, and Drew Barrymore was a full fledged coke fiend by age twelve. So you you know, maybe, you never maybe know. So, maybe so. It's it's the I just would love to know what Joseph Zito told him to do as direction for that or because the thing is is like the next day he goes to the lake with Trish or whatever and they're you know they're having naked time out there and like he just stops dead in his tracks and I'm like that's a more real reaction right there it's just like what what and just he, you know, he clears his eyes and just looks I'm like why didn't you do that last night it seemed much more honest that last night was just strange it made me feel very icky so yeah it definitely felt uh weird What's funny, though, is that none of these people, like, realize there's a kid on the bank, and they're all naked, and none of them are, like, ooh, freaking out and covering up with it. They're just like, yeah, you know, whatever. They, they asked them to come swimming. 
Yeah, like join us. You know, well, I think that one guy's hitting on Trish. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I mean, he he's like, ooh, upgrade. You know, because <laughs> she's pretty. I mean, the, Kimberly Beck's a very pretty woman, and I'm sure he was like, yeah. And I love how she's like, no, I think we're a little too dressed for for y'all. But I, yeah, I I think he's just hitting on her. But I'm I'm like, there's a, there's a small child here. Nobody seems to be freaked out about that at all. <laughs> and Judy Ross is not like that's the little toady that was watching me from across the road last night. So <laughs> I could hear his springs jumping up and down across the street. So, <laughs> yeah. but uh, yeah, so which makes what her boyfriend does to her later even worse because like you know they get it on and then he trades her off for one of the double mint twins later. <laughs> so yeah, uh, um, that's not cool. Right, I mean, right. It's, it's understandable. Cool. This is the eighties, uh, right? So it's very, very strange. But next, we get to meet Rob, who's looking for kids in the area and quote hunting bears um, <laughs> with this. So um, I, uh, I don't know. Uh, talk about paper thin characters. The, the funny thing about this is he's hunting for a killer. He's supposed to be the brother of the curly headed girl that got stabbed with the spear in part two. That happened. 48 hours ago <laughs> and he's already out there on the hunt <laughs> like have they even like had time to make arrangements for that girl yet anything oh no uh, maybe police were more efficient in the 80s and they just immediately broke the news that hey uh, your sister died yesterday go vigilante up in the woods oh this guy it, had seen death wish a few times in the where, th- yeah in the that, here's yeah. here's my question where's his like Where's his like 357 Magnum? Right, he's got a 22 rifle. <laughs> so and I'm like, that's not gonna do you any good, bro. I like 22 is deadly, but not against you know Jason. <laughs> so yeah, where's his shotgun? Yeah, uh, you're definitely not gonna. And your your hunting bears uh, story falls completely flat because there's no way you're taking a bear down with a 22. No, not even close. <laughs> I, mean, so, I mean, if you yeah. if you like were inside some sort of tank and you just had all day to shoot it, maybe you could kill it. And you but... hit it in both eyes, you know, and then you would hope that it didn't Leonardo DiCaprio you, you know, <laughs> after it got a hold of you. So I mean, because really, Leo shoots one with a friggin' musket and it still comes to get some, you know. Well, it was spoiler alert for the Revenant, by the way. But uh, <laughs> but anyway, yeah, we meet Rob uh, here. Um, I I don't know. Um, it's kind of weird. But uh, Corey Feldman is like obsessed with making masks. We haven't talked about that yet. His character is, and he wants to show them to the newfound friend here. Yeah, which uh, it, it plays like the is the second most accurate little kid uh, response to a new person. Is to you know, hey, come look at this cool thing. Right, uh, exactly. So, is this supposed to be like an in joke of like, this is probably what Tom Savini would be like, or this kid would grow up to be Tom Savini if we if we that was meet Jason? Uh, that was what my understanding of it was that the whole point of all those masks there was to because Tom Savini, of course, is special effects genius, and it was to kind of play off of Tom Savini's love of like you know. Uh, gimmicks and and masks and makeups. It had to be. I, I thought it was pretty good though. So I love how we we get slow dancing here. And I I wrote down what my wife wrote to me was what are these people listening to that they're dancing to because it's not that song. So and I'm like no <laughs> no it's not. <laughs> no, this is probably the most famous uh, scene of the movie because uh, you've got the wonderful Crispin Glover dance scene. 
uh, they were supposed to be dancing. Uh, the music that was actually playing was ACDC's Back in Black. Oh, that's awesome. I'm sure they couldn't be cleared for that. They so. could not get the rights for it, so they swapped in that theme, which is why... It, which just further makes Crispin Glover's dance that's much more ridiculous because it's completely offbeat and inappropriate to the music that's actually playing. Has, has someone, please tell me someone on the internet has redubbed this back in there. I'd love to see that. I, that's that's got to be like a fine or some, something. Like when you go from back in black, if they give it a low red around the background. You know, or something, whatever that is, when they're playing, it's different. We get killed for killed though, 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 not long after, after because you're on, you're on Samantha, Samantha here, here, her boyfriend, boyfriend is, is hanging out, hanging out with another, 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 another double in between Mac and Mac and whatnot, and good old, good old Samantha decides, well, I'm going to go do that again, again, and, and, uh, get into rap, rap, and out in the globe, you know. The world, the world, the, the lake here, and here, and it's just from after and underneath, you know, by Jason. Yeah, by Jason. And my question was Jason, Jason's underwater, underwater kill. And, and, and is this his version of their because she has, you know, drowning and all that, and all that, his way of getting up. Uh, yeah, I, uh, that's a great question. And you really don't see Jason go near the water all that much, uh, until this particular scene. Uh, so I can only assume that this is his first underwater kill. Um, and it's also him. Uh, clearly, he had learned how to swim. Another one that kind of cut short again because they went too long, and we get an overhead shot of the knife sticking out of her and stuff like that. And they said it was, it was too much blood on her back, and uh, some of the fake blood was running toward her buttocks, so they made him cut it. And I thought, really? So if the NCAA had, had, you know, this was the heyday of let's cut up the movies to death for reasons. So, but the, the extended scene is much better than that. But, uh, Paul finally has second thoughts, though, about cheating on uh, poor Samantha, which leads to kill five, and my wife said he gets what he deserves to get shot in the package with the, with the spear gun. I'm like, Jason finds another spear gun. It's like, oh, I remember this. You know, but he aims a little low this time. Yeah, that... I- I think that I, I can only assume that's one of the reasons why they made him so reprehensible. It seems like they put more thought into his behavior at this point, and I think and I think we're supposed to cringe slash cheer. I I think this it's all about what you said, and it's something that we should note. They dreamed up the kills for this movie before they ever had a story, and then they as they were writing this story, they said, "And this will be the person that gets it with the spear gun in the junk," you know. <laughs> and so they just kind of worked it around as the story happened. Yeah, yeah, we'll use the spear gun in the junk on that guy, you know. And so I mean, they just they had these kills, these stunts. And the makeup effects in mind before they built the story around it, and you know, I, I'm okay with it. It's like you know, if you play Mortal Kombat enough that you get really good, that you can dominate the game or whatever, you save the fatality, you know, <laughs> that you want to yeah. use or whatever. So I'm like, no, I kind of want to see what it looks like when I rip out uh, his spine, you know, <laughs> and stuff like that. So uh, I, I went with it. It was it was fine. I, I was glad he got it. He was annoying. He needed to die, you know. So. Um, I, I, you know, we we do bump into Rob here, who's armed with a machete in the woods, and I wrote a question here: What is with the fog? Isn't this summer? Because there's a lot of fog in this movie. Well, it's it's season indeterminate, uh, as True. always. Um, I know that, like, even up to last month, when we would have cold nights and it would warm up during the day, 
or vice it'd be warm at night and a cold front would move in we would get we we get fog like i would have fog on my drive to work okay uh, so and i know especially around lake areas cuz the water retains the heat or, or in, in cool when the, especially in like spring or like autumn you can get some lake effect fog Maybe that's it, the lake effect. I hadn't thought of it. That's a good point. But I did notice there was a lot of fog. I also think that's also to please let's hide all of the equipment that is around this. Well, yeah. yeah the, so. the, well, Jason bought that really cool smoke machine. He's got to get some use out of <laughs> he's it. Got, or he's making dry ice on the side. You know, that's his side business or something. I don't know. So we, we, we move right along to kill number six. So Terry, twin number one, who's not screwing Crispin Glover, that's how I knew her, um, who was almost with Paul or whatever, gets decides to leave, and she gets stabbed in the back. And I thought it, this was a nice shot because we don't see it happen. We see the shadow of it going down. And I thought, you know what? They've done a lot of off-screen kills. I actually like the fact that we see, like, the shadow kill. We hadn't seen that before, and I thought it was well done. Yeah, it's 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 a new... It's a slight. It's a more artistic version of the thing they've been doing all along with the off-screen kills. It at least it looks a little bit cooler, and it kind of makes me think of slightly more about one of the things this fir- the first movie ripped off, which is uh, Psycho. Yeah, it's like they're trying to do a higher class of cheap slasher here. You know, they know they're making a cheap one, and again, for the most part, everybody involved in this thinks this is it. So they're really trying to go all out with it. And I took it as that. But I liked that. That was a good kill. And we get to see her you know, kind of throw. She, she winds up getting, like, pegged to the side of the house with that, you know. Because we don't want to lose that body. That might be useful later. Oh, of know? course. Yeah. So. They, it, it, it's, it's really interesting to me how uh, Jason takes the time out to carefully display all these corpses that, around for later in the Well, again, going back. Going back to the roots, this you know Friday the Thirteenth is, if anything, is a ripoff of Halloween, right? And that's a big Michael Myers thing: is he makes decorations out of the things that he kills. <laughs> I mean, he does. That's what he does. And so it's it's you know it's kind of a prank. So it's I guess he's doing some of that. So it, uh, it was, I, I just assumed it was like a feng shui kind of thing. <laughs> Maybe it was. Maybe it did complete that porch. I, you'll have to go back and watch. I don't know. So, yeah, the, the dead Crispin Glover really tied the room together. Well, well you know what? We're going to get him in a little bit, so hold that thought. So so Trish finds Rob's camp and learns why he's there. You know, he lays out the whole thing, and he's out for revenge two days after she's killed. We've already kind of talked about that. But we see that somebody's been at his camp because his week 22 has been snapped into pieces like Bigfoot using it for a toothpick or something so i was like well i guess jason was like you think that's gonna work well just in case you know you might you might get lucky so i'm not taking any chances so is 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 rob meant to be um like a possible misdirect i think they're playing with that but come on like they don't even set it up right if that's the case but he does have a machete he does but he's also not in the places where we've seen jason kill people in the morgue so that, that's true. That's a bad misdirect if that's what they're trying to do. I think it's also you don't know what he's doing there. If not, maybe he's doing copycat. Maybe they're trying to play with that. I don't know. Actually, I liked him on his little Death Wish revenge game, even though it makes no sense as the time frame. Like, if you think about the time frame for this, it messes with you. Like, if you could have, like, put two weeks in between the last movie and this one, I, I would almost buy it better. Because at that point, there's been time to, you know, get a posse or whatever. But... <laughs> Maybe that's why there's not a posse because he's alone. But there's there's like 
50 dead bodies by the end of this weekend in this one county in New Jersey. So it's the record holder for the year. Like, there's no doubt. Yeah, so, they're at, they're at like Chicago summertime levels. Of I mean, getting yeah, shot. They are they are way high on their uh, their murder rate. There's no doubt about it by the end of this. But um, we do get to kill number eight though. So Crispin Glover, whose name is Jimmy in the movie, we should say, uh, finally uh, gets a little action, and uh, this woman oddly strokes the strange chest hairs he has, and uh, <laughs> with her very messed up hair, <laughs> double mint twin hair. And he goes downstairs to get some wine to celebrate, right? And, of course, he's bragging to his friend Ted, who's high. <laughs> it's a kite watching some old skin flicks right now. And he starts looking for the corkscrew, right? And, man, he gets it double. He gets screwed, literally. He gets the corkscrew in the hand to pin him to the cabinet. And then he gets a meat cleaver in the face. And they cut again from it very abruptly, but the the lingering shot is Jason like tries to rip the the cleaver out of his face and realize it's not coming, so he just lets it go. <laughs> but I mean, he buries it to the hilt in his face. I thought it was a great looking kill, and oh, yeah. kind of sudden, it's, yeah. It's it's spectacular, but you know, it, it's just uh, who really hasn't wanted to do that to Crispin Glover at some point. Probably the makers of Back to the Future too, at one time or another, when he went <laughs> for the salary he demanded at the end of that. But uh, I don't know, strange cat. But yeah, I, lo- I love how he's like, "Where's the corkscrew?" Ah! And he just, you know, he gets it all the time. Um, it's so weird. But we we go through the other kills pretty quick. We get Tina, the other sister that he has been with, gets thrown through a window onto a car. And I wrote Lethal Weapon style, baby. You know, <laughs> it's like two years later. Like, Joel Silver saw this and was like, I am totally doing that, except my girl's not going to fall off the side like that poor stunt girl did. I mean, that stunt woman took took a shot. She falls off the side of that station wagon to the to the ground. I'm like, oh, <laughs> that looks like one of those takes where she was supposed to land on the roof. And then they were like, uh, can we do that again? And she's like, no. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. I, I'm wearing a shirt and you've got the rain machine on. Uh-uh. So, I I bet the union called on that was like, guys, you can't do that. <laughs> I can't. My question was, why are the police not canvassing this area with all the mayhem that is known? There, there are enough of them. There were enough of them at the dang farm. Why aren't they walking around going, hey, have y'all seen any dead people? <laughs> you know, because there's like a 20 over here. So, this is just down the road. I, I'm blown away by the lack of cops in this film. Yeah, even even the first one, we got a little police lip service in the form of that guy showing up with his mo- with the motorcycle he doesn't know how to ride, where they stenciled police on it. <laughs> yes, yes, that guy. We don't we don't go for weird around here. Where I was hoping that I was hoping that guy would come back and get stabbed. They should have got that guy back. That'd have been great. They probably couldn't find him. So <laughs> I don't know where he might. They are in L.A. again here, so this is not Jersey. But uh, I, yeah, I I wondered where the police were here. Um, as the bodies stack up. So um, good old Ted gets to run that through his computer, a butcher knife in the back of the head. That was a, that, the splatter on the, on the little screen, and he kind of slides down it. I want to tell you, after seeing this movie you know, when I was younger, I never looked at a projection screen the same. And today, at work, I was standing in front of one giving a presentation, and I <laughs> kid you not, the, the image went through my head. So, <laughs> at least the knife didn't go through your head. It, it, it felt like it at the time, the headache I had. But yeah, I was like, "Whoa, good old Ted you know, gets that one. That was pretty good. Uh, I saw this ripped off years later in Candyman 2. 
uh, by the way. So, um, oh yeah, yeah, you know, you remember what I'm talking about? Yeah. So I was uh, farewell to the flesh. So, uh, but yeah, um, clearly this film was a lot more influential than we thought. <laughs> yeah, we had no idea. Yeah, we started looking into it. Do we get another head crush here? Um, I do love that the um, the guy singing in the shower. <laughs> Thinks it's Ted coming to mess with him, and his joke is, oh, I dropped my soap. <laughs> I'm like, did you really just say that? <laughs> but then I thought, you know, I had stupid friends when I was in college that that's exactly the kind of humor they would have said, so yeah, I could go for it. Uh, this is a great kill, though, man. I mean, that, that hand crushing his face like that, that looked really good. Yeah, that, that's definitely another uh, top-notch uh, kill, and it might be uh, the best... Uh, the best or the second best uh, head crush of the whole series. I think it may be the best one. I mean, it beats Paul's last time, right? So, or, or Rick's. So, because uh, yeah, I think I think uh, Doug's head crush here is pretty effective. Well, my my favorite head crush is is many movies in the future. Oh, okay. And you know also, what? literally in the future. Yeah, uh, you know what? I've forgotten, but hold that thought. So, yeah, we're we're <laughs> a long way from that one, baby. So, what yeah. is he singing about in the shower, though? Uh, something about tangerines. It's very like it doesn't make any sense. I'm like, I assume they probably did like a hundred takes, and the guy was like, whatever, <laughs> and just started making stuff up. Or they probably told him, stop singing real songs, dude. We can't get the clearance for it. <laughs> that That's much more likely. Yeah, well, you know, there's that story on, on the set of Alien that, like, they had to pay some exorbitant fee to whatever song Sigourney Weaver is singing because <laughs> it was from a Broadway. And like, they, they got in trouble for that. Like, she got in literal trouble for, you should have told us that was her real song. We thought you were making that up. So <laughs> I'm, I'm sure that had, that had probably flooded down through Hollywood at this point. They're like, don't do real songs. So. They probably could have uh, overdubbed it with some... Um weird pop music <laughs> <laughs> yeah like they had at the uh the earlier part of this film you're right so um could have been but i do like the, i do like the head crush so um sarah reproves the old horror cliche you know she she's not going to give it up she's not going to give it up she's finally giving it up to doug she dries her hair after being in the shower with him and she gets an axe in the chest for it so you you knew that was coming, right? Like, not you're not Final Girl. You Final Girl's next door, hanging out with Rob. You're not Final Girl. Yeah, you're you're not blonde enough to be Final Girl. I mean, she was cute, but she was definitely the the virgin to soon be ex virgin to now be dead. So that was that was her thing. But it was a good kill again, uh, an axe in the chest. It's a it's a simple kill, but it's a really effective kill. It works. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like that's the thing here is that they are doing creative things, but they're not getting like outlandish. Like everything he's doing is just using basic things to do work. He's not shooting people from thirty yards away, you know, with a spear gun. He's not hanging people with pitchforks in places that they normally wouldn't go. You know, he's doing stuff that you could see being done. You know, if you're into seeing that kind of stuff. But Rob and Trish go to investigate, and they see all the carnage, right? You know, we're we're gonna get we're gonna get it all now. We get the the body lineup, and I kind of thought that when Jason kills Rob, because you knew he was gonna get him, that we would get more from this or whatever. But we really don't even see it. We just hear him killing him, and we get Rob like narrating it. You know, like he's killing me, he's killing me. But uh, which is funny, but. I I thought we'd see more of that one, and they kind of keep it in the shadows. It's it's almost uh, oh my god, they're killing her. 
And now they're coming to eat me. Troll two. Troll. It's almost troll two. You're right. And that was made after this, wasn't it? Uh huh. So that's another thing. Troll two ripped off. So (laughs) good old. I'm sure the director of Troll two had seen this movie though, and told the kid to go for that. So, (laughs) um, I could totally believe that. So I do love that we get the showdown though, and I love how. You know, I I had misremembered. I thought Tommy like got all these licks in on Jason. Not really. Trish like if we thought Chris gave Jason a run for the money, well, Trish is like you know she's going full Ronda Rousey on his butt, man. I mean <laughs> yeah. she kicks his butt all over that house, and I thought, man, this is it's pretty good. I like this shit. I tried to count how many times she smashed him in the face with a hammer, and I kind of lost count. I think that must have been like a thing between her and Ted White. Is he's, I mean, he talked about how much he liked her and liked fighting with her because she didn't know what she was doing. And he's like, look, you can't hurt me, just hit me. You know? And so she, she would just flail on him and beat the crap out of him. And there's a, there's a, there's a, it's deleted or whatever. But when he gets killed in the end, you know, by Tommy with the machete, it's supposed to be because he reaches out for Trish and he accidentally grabs her chest. And like that, like, freezes him you know uh mm-hmm. and then that gives tommy the opening but what happened they ended up going like the mpaa said there's absolutely no way we're letting you do that <laughs> and so and the actress was for it she's like sure let's do it and then they're like no 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 and so instead they came up with the you got to knock his mask off you know which they had intended to do all along i, I was heard is that they wanted to cut that hockey mask off of him and let's talk about the end here and how it goes down what'd you make of jason's final out here I, it's, to me, it's one of the most indelible images of the entire series uh, when Corey Feldman comes down with his little powder-looking shaved head. What was with that, by the way? (laughs) He got that on quick. Yeah, they, well, I mean, they show him, like, cutting his hair with with scissors and then shaving Mm -hmm. his head with, like, a a safety razor, but I, I don't know if you've ever shaved your head or not, but unless you've got clippers, it's not quite that easy to scrape that much hair off no. with a with a disposable razor. No, it takes a long time <laughs> to do something like that. And uh he would also be cut and bleeding all over the place. <laughs> I mean, well, well, he does yeah. he does apparently leave a couple of patches of hair on the back of his head. This is true. So um I do like the way that, that the skin wrinkles for the skull cap that they've got him in. I thought that was really cute. Yeah. Um, the way that worked in that they kept trying to hide that when somebody would grab him, you know, so grab at the base of his neck so it doesn't show so bad. So um I thought that was good, but no, I, I don't know. I thought it was But but here's yeah. my question. This is a little uh Tom Savini Junior special effects nerd. Mm. Are we to believe this kid doesn't have a bald cap already? That's what I'm saying. Like, why isn't he just using something he's already got? Like, I figured he would have that just laying around. Um, I mean, yeah. Anybody who's ever, anybody who's got more than like three Halloweens under their belt has at least a wig or a, a bald cap or some kind of thing. And clearly, we know this kid's in love with monster effects. He's going to have like, his little Lon Chaney Jr. Jr. Uh, <laughs> kit. Make out mech, makeup kit. Yeah, something, right? It's just very 
I don't know. He goes with the old shaved head routine, and uh, boy, Jason does get it. Though I mean, he he really does because Trish has knocked his mask off. Then she, you know, she's buried that machete in his head once or whatever. He turns back around to go after Trish after seeing, I guess, a mirror image of his old self or something. And then Tommy gets him in the side of the head. And talk about a great effect. They get him on the side of the eye. And then Savini says he came up with all this. He said, well, have him fall and he'll just slide down the thing. And the uncut version of it is nothing but just, you know, K-Rose syrup pouring out of that thing. And I thought, man, that looked so awesome. They had to cut the heck out of it. But it still looks good. I mean... The original script, again, they said they were going to split him from the top of his skull to his Adam's apple. So they, they wanted it to look like he was dead. Yeah, and it, it definitely it definitely works. Even the cut version is still like really surprisingly uh, graphic. Cause if only for the shot of like the blood-coated machete slowly sliding out of the back of his head. Well, I mean, yeah, just the idea of that. And the fact that like you see the other side of his face, and it's just rubber... But the way it's crinkling, it's like it's emoting, like ouch, ow, <laughs> you know. And I'm like, ooh, we didn't, we never seen that, you know. And it's, it's such an effective scene, it's such a great uh, <coughs> setup there on the end. I thought it was fantastic. I, I really loved it. And then only to have him twitch a little. And Tommy to just go completely nuts and just, I mean, talk about, we talked about how he turned Ali into hamburger meat at the end of the last movie. Boy, <laughs> Tommy's just like, Bleh! it just loses his mind chopping this kid up. Yeah, it, it's, it's definitely, uh, yeah, there, there's, uh, the only thing that's left is a bunch of pieces. I mean, yeah, there's nothing like when they go to pick Jason up off the floor, they're cutting the floor up with because he's beaten into it it is great you know what though and i'm like man i wonder if they ever shot you know that they had a setup for what was underneath it and come to find out nope they didn't it was all supposed to be what do you think it would look like you know and uh i'll give them credit for having a moment of restraint there that you know somebody like rob zombie would have you know lingered on for 12 minutes so and had sherry moon like writhe in as it was happening so but uh So. Yeah, it's it's definitely. Uh, I think it's actually more effective. You've already you've already seen the the, the big shot. You've already seen the money shot right. of um, him getting the machete stuck in the side of his face. All the rest of it is is just Jason levels of overkill. Um, and I think it it's more effective um, given the ending that they focus on Corey Feldman having a psycho billy freak out exactly yeah I, I love that and then we get a coda in the hospital here right yes uh i totally forgot about this part of the movie like i didn't know it was going to happen I, I thought it ended with him in the house chopping jason up but no i mean that might have been a better ending but um this way dr exposition shows up to tell us oh no he's probably uh cory feldman's probably fine except that he may not be because we get the creepy look into the camera. Oh, yeah. I mean, they did that because at the end, again, they were like, well, we might not be done with this, so leave us something to go with. And so they said, I ah, will leave you, Tommy. And we'll talk about what they decide to do with that next time around. But uh, I love Dr. Exposition, by the way. That's a great <laughs> title. So <laughs> we're at the part of the podcast where it's time for final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings. Ron, what are yours for Friday the 13th, the final chapter? 
Uh, it's it's still one of the favorite. It's one of my favorites of the entire series. Um, I, I I love it. It's so uh, weird, but also uh, so gory. Uh, even cut up uh, as it is, it's still pretty like splattery for you know the early 1980s. Um, so I would definitely give it a large popcorn. Um, and also, if you haven't seen the Crispin Glover dance scene, please go watch it because it's spectacular. And again, somebody on the internet, please redub that to Back in Black for me. So <laughs> J underscore Newcastle on Twitter, please. So uh, I would love to see that. Uh, you know, I-, I said at the beginning of this that if you're trying to introduce Friday the 13th to somebody who had never seen any of it, you can just tell them to watch part four and they get everything they need to know from the first you know quarter of of the movies and stuff. And I stand by that. I think this is head and shoulders above the other ones in terms of quality, effects, also story and acting and script. Like, they do everything right here. Some of it's cheesy, yeah. Some of it's dated because it's made in the 80s. But a lot of this really works. And as far as this series goes, if I'm just to rate this in relation to itself and other series, this one... I don't know that they ever top it. I really don't. Like, I'm trying to think ahead if there's been another Jason movie that I will like as much as this one. I'll watch this one anytime it's on. Uh, I think it's fantastic. It holds up. And I'm going to give it the extra large popcorn. I think it's the best one we've seen. And I'll go out on a limb and say it's probably the best one of all of them. So I'm going to give it the extra large popcorn. Big, big Rex for the final chapter. But, of course, it's not the final chapter. we got six more of these to go. And then we get, you know, the culmination game, the, the WWE cage match at the end. So uh, we got a long way to go here, Ron, but it's been fun so far. Can't wait to get back and talk about part five because, oh, I have memories of this. So um, that uh, we will we will get into. But the folks, thanks for joining us on this latest edition of Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, continuousplaypodcast.com slash movies. Find links to our Facebook pages there, our Twitter accounts. Leave us a review on iTunes and let us know what you think. Hook up with us on Facebook. Let us know what you think of the show. We appreciate your support. Until next time, for Ron, I'm Jay. Thanks for listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, continuousplaypodcast.com forward slash movies. Please leave us a positive review on iTunes and link up with us on Facebook. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121.